This is an ABC podcast. Tomorrow, the Senate will vote on two articles of impeachment against President Trump. Today, NPR sat down in New York City with a man very much in the middle of the Ukraine scandal, the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Absolutely. It's a total vindication. Some of the senators are doing it because the president is completely innocent. He did exactly the right thing. The Senate may be ready to have Ukraine in the rearview mirror, but Giuliani says he is not done. Am I still investigating? Are you doing that on the authority of the president? Uh, He hasn't told me not to do it. Right at the centre of the recent Ukraine impeachment drama in the United States was President Donald Trump's personal lawyer and former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. Officially, Giuliani has no role in the Trump administration, yet he seems to wield considerable political influence. Hello, this is Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. So who is Rudy Giuliani? What's the history behind his relationship with President Trump? And how and why did he become involved in Ukraine? Most of us probably first heard of Giuliani in the days following September 11, 2001, when as mayor of New York, he guided the city after the terrorist attacks. But what do we know about the young Giuliani and the Giuliani of the past 19 years? Tom Robbins is a veteran reporter in New York and has been covering Giuliani since the 1980s. He was born in Brooklyn. His folks moved out to Long Island in the suburbs surrounding the city when he was just a small child. But he went to school in the city. He attended Catholic schools as a young man. My father would say to me, when you make a decision, the most important thing you've got to think about is can you shave the next morning and look at yourself in the mirror and feel good about yourself. Giuliani often referred to how much he had learned from his father, Harold, and talked about how many lessons he had learned about life from him. And it was only until he had been mayor of the city of New York for over six or seven years that one of his biographers learned that his father, in fact, had been a stick-up man. (laughs) and served a prison term and had worked for the mob as a collection artist, essentially. And Giuliani at first said that was news to him, but then eventually acknowledged that he'd known about his father's criminal record and just had chosen not to talk about it. His parents were working class, children of Italian-American immigrants. Jonathan Tobin is the editor-in-chief of JNS.org and a columnist with the New York Post. His father was a bartender, not uh, that successful. He had an uncle who was actually involved with a mob and other relatives who were policemen. And it was, uh, to some extent, uh, there was always a certain degree of shame about the criminal side of the family who had actually employed his father at one point. But this was, in some ways, a typical upward-striving immigrant family who had scraped to send their kid to a private Catholic school rather than the public schools. He was uh, the sort of overachieving kid who was a parent's dream in that sense. I think he was clever, yes. I think think everybody who went to school with him talks about him. He was bright, he was clever, and, and he was pretty companionable. Folks who later differed with him radically in politics remember him fairly fondly from those years. He was always ambitious, He had started pursuing office when he was in school, in in high school. He he ran for president of his class. One of his former girlfriends from his teen years said that Rudy talked even back then about wanting to be president of the United States. He got the political bug even in high school. 
Interestingly, he was at that time, as was very typical of immigrants in the New York area, he was a Democrat, a supporter of John Kennedy, and stayed a Democrat right up until after law school and began government service. So what did he do when he left law school? Where did he, where did he end up? He went to work first in, for a law firm and then clerking for a federal judge. Then he went directly into the U.S. Department of Justice. He worked there for several years and then went back to work for another prestigious law firm in New York. And interestingly, a lot of people who've gone to law school who are interested in in some kind of career that involves litigation and criminal justice, they often want to do it because they're looking basically to be able to, you know, have a lucrative, prestigious career as defense attorneys. And that was not his interest. He made an abrupt U-turn after working at a major, what they call a white shoe law firm, meaning it was very prominent and prestigious. And he went back to the Justice Department in the Reagan administration, where he rose fairly quickly and became the number three person in the Department of Justice. He had been a registered Democrat from his years of admiring Bobby Kennedy. And then after Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980 and he went to work in Reagan's Justice Department, Giuliani switched his registration and became a Republican. It was obviously an opportunity that was going to advance his career. He was not alone in that there were many members of the sort of Democratic Party of that era who were socially conservative especially among Italian and Irish immigrants, the belief in the Democratic Party as that party kind of came apart in the crisis of liberalism at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. He's not alone in losing faith in the party, which ceased to be sort of a John or Bobby Kennedy party and became a bit more radical under McGovern. And I think it was a very natural slide from from the Democrats to the Republicans. In 1981, Giuliani was named an Associate Attorney General in the Reagan administration. Then in 1983, he was appointed U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Being the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, which is based in New York City in Manhattan, is considered the most prestigious law enforcement position for a prosecutor in America. Rudy was actually asked when he was at the Justice Department in Washington to look for candidates for that job. And he said, I don't have to look. I I have one. It's me. And he came back to New York, the town where he was born, and came in like gangbusters in 1983 when he arrived in town. He began making his mark fairly quickly, being very aggressive, using federal statutes to go after Wall Street corruption, the mafia, and municipal corruption which really got the attention of New Yorkers because they hadn't seen such a kind of swashbuckling prosecutor for a long time. The last several years, you've been very active, very visible in law enforcement. What of all of these things that you've done are most satisfying? It's very hard to pick, but I think probably identifying certain areas of crime. Today, when we talk about the problem of crime, we begin to think more about crime committed at some of the maybe more powerful levels of our society, political corruption, fraud, insider trading, tax evasion, crimes like that. And how successful was he in the prosecutions that he actually brought forward? And were there any questions about the kind of methods he used? There were questions about his methods. At one point, when he was going after men that he was charging with having violated the securities laws, 
He had his agents actually go onto the trading floors and arrest these men in plain sight of all of their comrades and colleagues and friends, basically humiliate them, shackled them, and had them marched off the trading floor. And, you know, of course, that was a technique which he wanted to send a message in order to say this kind of activity will not be tolerated. But in fact, several of those people that he had publicly humiliated like that, he he later ended up dropping the charges against. We realized that, in fact, he was more interested in making the bang at the public statement than he had been in trying to actually come up with a rock-solid case. And that was pretty telling. He got the big applause for his work against the mafia. He brought a case against the men who were considered the leaders of the five organized crime families in New York and won convictions that sent them away to prison for most of their natural lives. In his municipal corruption cases, he went up against a group of long-term city hall insiders who were all Democrats and who were very close to the then mayor, Mayor Ed Koch, and he won a major conviction against a group of them for trading on insider tips and favors and getting contracts. And he won a lot of applause for that. And that certainly won the attention of reporters like myself who had been writing about the issue of municipal corruption for years but had never actually been able to get prosecutors to pay attention to it. But even then, he continued to pursue targets for his prosecution that seemed more aimed at his emerging political ambition than they did the actual case. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince. One of Giuliani's strengths was his use of the media. Harry Siegel is a senior editor with The Daily Beast and a columnist with The New York Daily News. When he was a U.S. attorney, there was tremendous criticism, a lot of which was mitigated because he was really, really good at leaking to the press. The great Nat Hentoff, a longtime columnist for The Village Voice, recalled going into a conference room packed with reporters and Giuliani then playing a game that he called a journalist dream, where reporters named public officials and other public figures. And after each one, Giuliani was asked if this person was about to be indicted, might be indicted, or if the U.S. attorney had no interest. And he answered that. Hentoff describes that as a, a sort of star chamber, because a lot of the people who were asked about he did go after, and with some success, and because many of them had done criminal things, you know, his star continued to rise, and much of the press didn't want to bite the hand that was feeding it very good stories at that point. So broadly, he was getting excellent press. He was in a high-profile position. He was bringing down high-profile opponents, and he was being celebrated and rewarded and ending up on magazine covers, very clearly with an eye on a political future. In 1989, Giuliani ran for mayor of New York. Six months ago, when I began campaigning, I knew a lot about this city. And as United States attorney, I got to see up close the inner workings of this city. Now more than ever, I want to be the person who leads New York. A Republican was considered a long shot, and, and he was a long shot. He was coming after three terms of a mayor who had been initially very popular, but whose popularity had waned. I'm talking about Mayor Ed Koch. And he would run against him on the issue of corruption and reform that he would use the cases that he had won against some of Koch's associates and use that to advance a case to the public to say what you need is a cleanup at City Hall and I'm the guy who can do it. But Koch lost the primary and he lost to David Dinkins, who 
was the first black person to win a mayoral primary, and that's who Giuliani found himself head-to-head with in the 89 contest. And in a very close race, Dinkins won. But as soon as he lost, he began preparing to run again. And when he started to run again for the 93 election, we saw a very different Rudy Giuliani. Instead of talking about reform, he talked mainly about issues of law and order, which certainly was a crucial problem in New York. Murders in 1990, the first year that Dinkins took office, crested, reached a high mark of over 2,200. And while they fell over the following three years of Dinkins' mayoralty, Giuliani recognized that the perception of crime amongst New Yorkers was probably more important than the actual statistics. And that was his drumbeat for three years. So when he finally ran his election campaign in 1993, he ran as a law and order candidate against a black incumbent who was seen as weak on crime. And the message to the public was, I'm the white knight and I can fix this. And then that 100,000 votes that had gone to Dinkins almost exactly flipped over in 93 and he won election. And once he was there, as crime plummeted in his first term, as disruptive as he was and as upset as the establishment was in this very democratic city to have aggressive Republican mayor, he cruises to re-election in 1997. I think at first that Giuliani was greeted warmly by the public and was considered to be a hands-on manager. And we saw signs that he was going to actually address issues that had been unaddressed. And there was, I think, a lot of hope. It changed pretty swiftly in terms of the, the public response to him. He was able to win election in 1997. There was a fairly weak candidate that the Democrats put up against him. But even then, the tide began to turn, and and what really caused it to turn was Giuliani himself. He he seemed to become more interested in kind of the stage of being mayor than the actual actions of being mayor. Giuliani's ideas about homelessness are disgusting. They're horrifying. We will require them to work in exchange for shelter. But I took a city of dependency and made it into a city of workers. Well, he knows when he's violating people's civil rights and constitutional rights. He knows By the time his second term was over, and and at that time New York had term limits that limited him to only two terms in office, he was deeply, deeply unpopular. And if not for the attack in New York on the World Trade Center on 9-11, he would have remained that way. In 2000, as his second term as mayor was coming to an end, he wanted the Republican nomination for the New York Senate seat, which would have seen him run against Hillary Clinton. In the end, as the election grew closer, he pulled out of the race. He did not risk being defeated by Hillary Clinton, which, you know, he didn't want to lose. So he disappointed the Republican Party, which saw him as someone who could have a very decent shot at winning a very tough race for them. And in the end, loses his chance to get a foothold on the national stage. Although there always were people who thought that the idea of Giuliani in the Senate was a bad fit because this was a person who likes to run things. <laughs> he liked being mayor. Being just one of 100 members of a body that is mainly about talking, it sort of boggles the imagination how he would have fit in as a senator had he persevered in that race and ultimately won it. But in the end, he decided that discretion was the better part of valor. But then everything changed on September 11, 2001. I thank God that I'm, that I'm safe. 
I feel terrible for the people that, that we lost, some of whom I talked to just 15 minutes before we lost them. And the city is going to survive. We're going to get through it. It's going to be a very, very difficult time. I don't think we yet know the pain that we're going to feel when we find out who we lost. But the thing we have to focus on now is getting the city through this. And I'll never forget covering the press conference afterwards when reporters were pressing the mayor to say, well, how many have died? How many have died? And, and Giuliani just stood there in a very un-Giuliani-like tone of voice, very sympathetically said, whatever the number is, it is more than we can bear. And I think it was those kinds of moments that made New Yorkers think we have a leader. Giuliani had been right near the Trade Center when they fell, so there was very vivid and dramatic footage of him trying to find a place to be able to direct the police department and the fire department to respond to the crisis. He compared himself to Winston Churchill at the time, and it wasn't completely off the mark because New Yorkers were completely terrified. And it was only long after that, really, that reporters started taking a look at some of the things that had happened that they recognized that some of the aspects, the high number of firefighters that died in the tragedy might well have been less had not some certain mistakes been made on the part of the city. One astonishing aspect was that we learned that the police and the fire departments couldn't communicate directly on their radios. They had to go through somebody else to get back and speak to them. So the firefighters who were up in the towers and were trying to understand what was happening and the cops who were in the helicopters who were trying to direct them, they had trouble communicating. You know, there had already been a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center a few years earlier, and yet the mayor had chosen to locate an office that he created called New York's Office of Emergency Management right next door to the Trade Center, even though all experts said it is a target for terrorists. They came after it once, and they'll probably come after it again. So when the towers came down, the building that housed Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management also collapsed. And that was another good question. Well, if this guy was such a great manager, like how did those things come to be? New York's Mayor Rudolph Giuliani has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. The magazine's editor Jim Kelly says the award was made in the light of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center on September the 11th. He was a man for a crisis. All of his strengths were on display after 9-11, both in terms of his ability to communicate with the public, but also in his willingness to, to sort of step in, make decisions. It was a very impressive show, and it did alter the way everyone thought of him. You know, all the criticisms uh, that had accumulated during his, his career were sort of swept away in the glow of that great moment. It's, he likes to compare himself to Winston Churchill, and maybe that's if you're going to talk about Churchill in 1940 and how he was a man for the moment in a great crisis where his talents were just perfectly suited for it. That was kind of the same for Giuliani in 9-11. In the months after 9-11, as Giuliani's second and final term as mayor came to an end, it appeared that almost anything was open to him. He was knighted by the Queen and hailed as America's mayor. He had every option in the world at that point for what it is he would like to do. And what he largely did, in addition to some campaigning here and there, was he set up a series of businesses, a legal business, a security consulting business, and made a decent amount of money. He did all this with his eyes on 
a run for the presidency in 2008. So after President Bush's two terms in office would have been done. Three months before voting for a new president begins, the religious right in America hasn't united behind a Republican candidate. But they know who they don't want. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the Republican Party's current frontrunner. If he'd been able to run in 2004, he might well have had a good shot. But George W. Bush was running for a second term, and he was a Republican, and there was no way he was going to challenge him, of course. So he had to wait his turn. And by 2008... The bloom was pretty much off the rose. Giuliani had been a pretty effective politician in the close confines of New York City. But when he took his show on the road, so to speak, he turned out not to be very good at retail politics. He wasn't much of a public speaker. His policies were nothing impressive other than his past record on crime and as a prosecutor. And he was deeply humiliated, I think, by that experience. I think that really changed him because I think he had believed his own public relations version of himself and then faced with a broader public, he'd realized that that wasn't something that he could sell as widely as he'd hoped. It's really a crisis in his career. It's his first truly great defeat in, in a career which had always been on the, the upward slide since he'd been a young man. And it's at that point that many people see, you know, a sea change in him as he becomes more oriented towards making money. He, you know, he has no outlet for public service, so he goes into lobbying, security consulting. And at this point, he, he's no longer a heroic figure, but just another person involved in lobbying and often with for very unsavory clients, Turkey, Qatar, countries that, you know, that as the avatar of a strong American foreign policy. And he was the man who threw Yasser Arafat out of a party in, in New York City because he believed him to be a terrorist. He winds up representing a lot of unsavory clients and you know, is, is then seen as a very different person in some ways, even though, as I said, he was always a new rule breaker, always someone you know, out for himself. But it's truly a crisis. You know, he anticipated, he thought he was going to be president. He thought it was a natural succession, but it really was never to be. And his post-presidential career is colored by that disillusion. And had Trump and Giuliani actually known each other or been connected back in the early days of New York? They did. It would have been hard for them not to. You know, they were both bigger-than-life figures in New York in the 80s and 90s. So how should we understand that connection today between Trump and Giuliani? Because in essence, Giuliani has become the greatest advocate for Donald Trump. And in, yes, in essence, Trump, the same with Giuliani. Yes, yes. It's, it's definitely a mutually beneficial relationship between two astounding scoundrels. I mean, Giuliani is always being described by President Trump as the greatest mayor in the world. I think he did it just today in speaking from the White House about his acquittal and impeachment. He is always talking about Rudy Giuliani as the greatest crime fighter of all time. So he gives the president kind of a patina of approval in some circles by saying, look, I've got this crack rackets buster, this guy who brought down the mob. He is my lawyer, and there's no one straighter than Rudy Giuliani. And for on Rudy's side, he craves the publicity, I think. And he also is interested in reigniting those financial connections that were once so beneficial to him. 
He did very much want to be part of the Trump administration, but he wanted to be the Secretary of State. He reportedly turned down the job of Attorney General as beneath him at that stage of his career. But Giuliani carved out this niche for himself once Trump came under attack and began to be investigated himself as the president's lawyer. And he's taken to it like moth to a flame. He's just been made it every single day. If you turn on TV and the radio, Trump is invoking Giuliani's name in his own defense. And Giuliani is doing radio shows and TV interviews and podcasts. Clearly, through this whole impeachment crisis and the whole Ukraine crisis, Rudy Giuliani seems to be almost the fulcrum of it all. I think that's very true. He's there. He's the one who uh, sort of goes to Ukraine and is nosing around. To be fair to Giuliani, there was a leg to stand on in you know the question of what was going on in terms of Vice President Biden's son does get this high-paying job at a Ukrainian energy company. And even if he did nothing illegal, and even if the vice president did nothing, you know, there was no corruption or bad behavior associated from it, it looks bad. I mean, it, it smells. And uh, Giuliani is there both to be uh, this roving unofficial secretary of state looking for justification somehow to throw a monkey wrench into Biden's presidential campaign because Biden is you know, seen at that point as the most potent Democratic candidate. That may not, speaking today, that doesn't seem like that's the way it's going to work out. And it's Giuliani who's there, who's digging around at odds with the U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine and sort of helping to create this murky situation and whispering in Trump's ear that leads to the, you know, the phone conversation with Ukrainian President Zelensky about asking him to start an investigation, which becomes the causes belli for the impeachment drama that has transfixed this country in the United States for the last few months. If you had told me in 1980. Seven or 88 when Giuliani was at sort of the height of his profile as a rackets buster that he would end up as the lawyer for Donald Trump who kind of personified each one of the aspects that Giuliani was doggedly pursuing with his investigations. I would say that's impossible because while they were similar in terms of their both craved publicity, Giuliani not only didn't seemed to want to have anything to do with people like Trump. He, I think he hated rich people back then. I think that his attitude was that if you're that wealthy, you must have done something wrong. His old friends describe him now as someone who's become the thing that he once hated. I think this is the same Rudy Giuliani that we've always known. Yes, I mean, some of his former admirers say he's much too interested in money. He's been corrupted by Trump. He's been corrupted by his disillusion over political failure. But I see the same rule breaker, the same fellow with a chip on his shoulder willing to push and bend the rules to get whatever he wants. That was there as the crusading U.S. attorney and as the highly successful mayor of New York. He's the same person he's always been. Yes, he's older. He's richer his political instincts seem to be much worse than they used to be. He's past his political expiration date, but he's the same person. It's not like he was transformed after either his mayoralty or his attempt to become president in 2008. This is the same Rudy Giuliani, who's the working class kid, upwardly striving, 
pushing everyone aside that he's always been. The American public loved Rudy Giuliani when he was breaking rules to get at the mob, to get at corrupt Wall Street figures. They loved him when he was breaking the rules to help clean up New York and to cut through all the bureaucratic tape even after 9-11. That's the same fellow that breaks rules and makes enemies and creates problems all along. He's the same person, and uh, just in different circumstances. He's a figure out of Greek tragedy, I believe. The character traits that are part of his great gifts and part of his success, they are the same ones that make for both failure and for scandal. Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of JNS.org and a columnist with the New York Post. My other guests, veteran New York journalist Tom Robbins and Harry Siegel senior editor at The Daily Beast and a columnist with the New York Daily News. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.